the National Archives podcast series, Authority, Legitimacy and Orthodoxy, The Accession of Henry V in 1413, presented by Dr. James Ross. Hello and thank you all for coming. As I'm sure many of you will be aware, in a couple of weeks it'll be 600 years since um, Henry V succeeded his father as King of England. Henry is best known for his famous victory at the Battle of Agincourt and his subsequent conquest of Normandy as a successful soldier, in other words. Today, um, illustrated by a few of the many documents here at the National Archives um, which date from from Henry's lifetime, I'd like to explore perhaps the less well-known, less glorious side to Henry, the the, the more formative years. First part of the paper, um, I intend to look at Henry's apprenticeship as Prince of Wales during, during the troubled reign of his father, Henry IV, And in the second, um, I hope to look at the first two years of of Henry V's reign itself through the somewhat overlapping themes of authority, legitimacy and orthodoxy. Historians are in general agreement that Henry V was a very able and successful king. He does occasionally get criticised for a degree of self-righteousness, for his rather effective use of propaganda to bolster his own image, perhaps that he didn't maybe have a really long-term plan about how to conquer France. But in general, historians have tended to to think he was um, a very good king. I'll give you a sample of quotes here. William Stubbs in the 1870s called him by far the greatest king in Christendom. The influential late medievalist K.B. Macfarlane described him as the greatest man who ruled England. Gerald Harris um, described Henry V's achievement as sufficient to establish him as a great king. And Christopher Ormond, in a recent biography, um, said, The overriding impression left by Henry V is of a man of order, toughness, determination, and tireless energy, firm, sometimes even harsh, in his dealing with others. He was a man whom all could respect. So modern historians are, I think, in agreement, but this was not, this is by no means um, limited to modern historians. Within his own lifetime, Henry was seen as a great king, and that proceeded in the centuries afterwards, including, most notably, Shakespeare's Henry V, which was written around 1599 and is, by general consensus, one of his best history plays. But it elevates the king to the highest pinnacle of kingship. Just one quote of many I could have chosen. This star of England, fortune made his sword, by which the world's best garden, i.e. France, was achieved. However, Shakespeare's also responsible for the picture of Henry's um, earlier years as a playboy prince. Again, a quote from Henry IV here. Such inordinate and low desires, such barren pleasures, rude society as thou art matched with all. And this is actually something that has stuck with Henry, uh, about Henry V, that he, this transformation from a a playboy prince to to a great king. Nothing could be further than the truth. Henry's apprenticeship as Prince of Wales was harder than almost any other contemporary prince I can think of, and his first two years as king were uneasy and difficult. So, I'm going to start, um, as most talks in in, uh, 15th century history pretty much have to start, with the usurpation of 1399, in which Richard II was deposed by Henry IV. In some ways, this was the product of a short-term political crisis, Richard II was autocratic, unpopular, and he alienated many amongst the political elite by being seen to interfere with property rights and succession to noble estates. 
When the most powerful magnate, magnate Henry, heir to the recently deceased Duke of Lancaster, who was already in exile, found himself dispossessed. He had little to lose. He therefore returned to England with a small force of around 300 men. Richard II was then in Ireland and found himself deserted by almost all his allies um, and forced to submit to Henry, who crowned himself Henry IV. Richard was imprisoned and, um, having given up his throne, died in highly suspicious circumstances, probably starved to death the following year. It was therefore a short-term political crisis, but the usurpation carried rather longer-term consequences. It was the first time since Stephen and, uh, the Civil War of Stephen and Matilda in the 1130s and 1140s that there was a serious question over the right of, the, uh, of a king to sit on the throne. Other political crises, such as the deposition of Edward II, his successor, Edward III, was the son and heir. It was obvious. Here, it's not clear who is the rightful king. And the legacy of this uncertainty was still being felt by Henry VIII in the 1530s and the 1540s. It, it has long-term consequences. And the reason, as I'm sure many of you know, is that the new king, Henry IV, was the grandson of Edward III through Edward III's third son. Another grandson, um, Edmund Mortimer, was descended from Edward's second son, and therefore potentially had a better claim to the throne. Persistent rumours that Richard II had survived and escaped to Scotland also added to the general air of uncertainty. And this led to a series of challenges to um, Henry IV throughout his reign. There were risings in 1400, 1405, 1408. But the most serious ended in a, in a bloody battle near Shrewsbury in 1403. Henry IV was faced by the forces of the per powerful Percy family, Earls of Northumberland, and other Norman, uh, northern rebels. Henry only narrowly won the battle, and the future Henry V, commanding one wing of the, the royal army, was wounded in the face by an arrow and probably permanently scarred. The picture I showed you at the beginning with Henry being side on was probably because his other cheek was scarred and he didn't want that to be reflected in his royal portraiture. Political uncertainty at Westminster was exploited to the full in Wales. For the first time in the century or more since Edward I's conquest, English rule in the Principality was seriously threatened. A local dispute involving a northern Welsh landowner, Owen Glyndwr, exploded into open revolt against um, English control, and a series of major English expeditions failed to bring Glyndwr to battle or the revolt under control. Instead, seizing prisoners in castles, Glyndwr expanded his control over most of North and West Wales, was proclaimed Prince of Wales by a new Welsh Parliament in 1404, and sent envoys to France to secure an agreement with the French King, affixing his new Great Seal to the treaty. This was Glyndwr's high point, and in the following years, um, continuing English military activity began to get the situation under control though it's perhaps not until 1407 that the tide of war really turns, and perhaps not until 1409 that it could really be said to have been, have been suppressed. This involved years of low-level grinding warfare and long sieges of strong castles. Henry, Prince of Wales, was only 14 when the rebellion broke out in his principality. However, he was involved from the start of uh, the operations and was in overall control from at least 1403. This is reflected in some of the documents here at the National Archives. Um, I've taken one example here from um, Exchequer accounts in, uh, under the reference E101-404-24. 
This records wages of war for those men under, uh, of the prince's personal retinue, personal household, from the 17th of April to the 18th of July, 1403. Comprises a total retinue of four barons, 20 knights, 476 men-at-arms and 2,500 archers. And for these three months, the total cost of the crown was over £7,000. So this is a big army for one, one person to be commanding. The war in Wales preoccupied Henry directly and personally until at least 1407, and operations continued in his name after that date. And it is worth emphasising that this was a hard military apprenticeship. It's not glorious, it's um, low-level, it's grinding, it's difficult, but it did give Henry a very good grounding in um, how to wage war. That was not all that Henry, was, that Henry Prince of Wales was involved in. By 1409 to 10, Henry IV's regime was fairly secure. From 1407, with the war in Wales less threatening, the prince um, attended about two-thirds of the meetings of the Royal Council. And between 1410 and late 1411, the prince was the dominant force in, in the Royal Council during a period when his father was frequently and often seriously ill. The prince publicly committed himself to provide good and substantial governance in response to criticism of his father's regime in Parliament. But they were also keen to, to look at foreign policy and to exploit divisions amongst the French to secure and increase their holdings in France, principally at this date, Duchy of Aquitaine. So the prince makes the decision to send an expeditionary force um, to aid the Burgundian faction, and English troops fight for the Duke of Burgundy at the Battle of Saint-Cloud in 1411. But in November of that year, Henry IV recovered enough to reverse this policy, and a large force was sent to aid the Armagnac faction against the Burgundians um, in 1412, a decision that um, is enshrined in the Treaty of Bourges in 14, um, 1412 under the reference E3377 with some impressive seals on the bottom. But this was humiliating for Prince Henry, especially as the military command was given to his younger brother Thomas, created Duke of Clarence for the occasion when, he would have, when actually the Prince of Wales would have expected to have led any major expedition. Henry IV appears to have come to resent the level of authority being exercised by his son and heir. And during the last 15 months of his reign, of Henry IV's reign, the prince and his associates lost the leading position they had occupied and were excluded from the exercise of power. While there was no open public breach, Henry's relations with his father and his brother were clearly strained and splits in the royal family could have a, you know, a really detrimental effect on the governance of, of the country. However... Henry IV died on the 20th of March, 1413, at Westminster, aged just 45. A visit before Henry's coronation to a religious recluse at Westminster, whose advice he sought and to whom he confessed his sins, is possibly the, the um, event that was later used as a literary device to show his conversion from this irresponsible youth to a serious ruler. It may perhaps be the basis of Shakespeare's sort of depiction of his conversion from the playboy prince to, to, an, uh, to, to a serious king. But as we've seen, Henry's youth was rather more about warfare and governance than it was about drinking and idleness. There was an expectation, there were high expectations for this new king. Henry IV had been unpopular. Henry V, as his replacement, was, was seen to, to be um, you know, a potentially a, a, a very good king. 
And one contemporary chronicler saw him as young in years, but old in experience. Henry was crowned three weeks later on the 9th of April, um, which was Passion Sunday. Surprisingly little is known about the coronation, as although we know who carried out which of the major offices, as there's a file of petitions in um, the document reference C57-3, there is very little detailed information about the day itself. The expense accounts, which is what you might have um, expected to see, are surprisingly no longer extant. Doubtless, though, the solemn ceremony was intended to reinforce Henry's authority as the crowned and anointed king, both to the political elite and to the general populace who would have seen it. That, therefore, is, is the background to Henry's succession. I'd now like to concentrate on the first two years of, of the reign. And as I mentioned earlier, I'd like to try and do it through the rather overlapping headings of authority, legitimacy and orthodoxy. And I'll begin, if I may, with legitimacy. In December 1413, Henry ordered the reburial of Richard II, who had first been quietly entombed in the obscure church at Langley in Hertfordshire. And Henry ordered this reburial in the expected resting place of Kings of England, Westminster Abbey. By doing this, Henry could assert not only his own piety and magnanimity, but actually did this emphasise his own legitimacy. It was not him who had brought Richard II down, and yet he is now the legitimate king, and he is showing this by giving Richard II a, an, honor, an honourable burial. Detailed information survives of the considerable expenditure and ceremonial involved, recorded in the issue roll for Michaelmas 1 Henry V, now under the reference E403-614. It contains a number of items of expenditure relating to the funeral, I'll pick a couple of, um, uh, of examples here. One John Widermere, who was a joiner of London, was paid 40 shillings to make a beer for the carriage of Richard's body from Langley to Westminster Abbey. Um, while Giles Thornton, servant of the Chandlery, was paid 43 pounds, 11 shillings and tuppence for providing 120 torches to burn around Richard's body on the way. This therefore wasn't a quiet reburial, it was a big ceremony um, with lots of um, expenditure and done um, in a very public way to, as I say, to emphasise Henry V's piety and duty to, his, to one of his predecessors. And yet, even Henry's reburial of Richard did not quite end the uncertainty over whether Henry was the legitimate king. While at Southampton preparing his invasion of France in late July 1415, a plot came to light, instigated by Richard Earl of Cambridge, Henry Lord Scroope of Massam, and Sir Thomas Grey of Heaton, almost certainly aimed at putting Edmund Mortimer, Earl of March, grandson of Edward III, on the throne and killing Henry V in the process. The plot was betrayed by Mortimer himself. He presumably figured that it was highly unlikely to succeed and was only going to end up with him having his head cut off as well. So he betrayed the conspiracy to the king, and Cambridge, Scroope and Grey were all executed. The severed heads of Scroope and Grey were displayed on the walls of York and Newcastle, respectively, in, um, in a, I'm sure, a fairly gruesome way, but one that was quite typical for the heads of traitors. But this conspiracy indicated that Henry would not, have be, would not be safe until he had proven himself a successful king. One way Henry could try and do that was to demonstrate his own personal piety and orthodoxy. 
He did this in a number of ways, most of them very typical for this period. You can see it both in small-scale ob oblations or gifts that, print, that then Prince Henry offered at the altar of the monastery in Litchfield and Staffordshire and in the Church of the Preaching Friars in Shropshire in March, April and May 1403 as he made his way towards Wales for further military operations. It's small scale, it's just 16 shillings, but it's the kind of thing that was expected of a great lord to, to, be, to show his generosity. On an entirely different scale, Henry founded two major monastic houses, the Carthusian Monastery at Sheen and the Bridgetine Nunnery at Zion, both on the River Thames. The latter in particular stands out as above and beyond the required level of religious observance. It's a huge foundation, um, very, very grand building, hugely well endowed. It's, it's more than you might expect a king to do. So Henry is showing his piety and his orthodoxy in the most grandiose way by these foundations. He was also given the opportunity of demonstrating his orthodoxy um, in a rather more unexpected way. The Lollards were a group whose views um, in some ways prefigured later Protestant beliefs. They questioned the traditional authority of the Pope, the cult of the saints and the Virgin Mary, the, the power of the bishops and the established church. Many of these beliefs were based on the ideas of John Wycliffe, an Oxford Don who had died in 1384. Now while these beliefs were heretical and were condemned by the church, Many of the Lollards um, were protected by influential patrons. One of these was Sir John Oldcastle, who had fought for Prince Henry against Owen Grandeur, was elected MP in 1404, and had served as Sheriff of Herefordshire in 1408. He's therefore an influential man. But he is not influential enough to escape forever the um, strong arm of the church. And on the 25th of September, 1413, Sir John Oldcastle was condemned as a heretic and excommunicated at Blackfriars before the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Arundel. Henry V gives him a stay of execution because um, he's anxious for his trusted captain to recant. It is quite embarrassing for a king who's, who wants to be seen as being orthodox um, and pious to be associated with a heretic. But Oldcastle escaped from the Tower on the 19th of October 1413 and in hiding in London began to organise a rising. The monastic chroniclers of the time build this up as a very big thing. One of them, Thomas Walsingham, says that at every path, street and crossroads, you could have seen crowds of people flocking together, brought to London from almost every county of England by the extravagant promises of the Lollards. However, the historian K.B. McFarlane noted that almost all those known to have been wanted, arrested, tried, executed or pardoned added up to only two to three hundred men. It is therefore something of a damp squib of a revolt. Not least because the king knew about it in advance and was well in control of the situation. Henry closed the gates of London to prevent Lollards from the city joining Old Castle and at St Giles in the Fields, then just outside the city walls, the small numbers of rebels who had gathered were easily dispersed by the king's professional soldiers. Perhaps 80 men were captured, a few were killed, and some, like Oldcastle himself, escaped. On the following morning, um, a judicial commission, known as an Oya and Termine commission from the French from to, to hear and to determine, a commission was set up, headed by Lord Ruse and Scroop, to, to deal with those who were taken into custody. 
69 men were condemned as traitors and executed. Those seven of them were burned for heresy as well as being executed. The two crimes carried different penalties. When someone was guilty of both, they had to be executed in different ways at the same time. On the following day, provincial commissions of Oyo and Termini were issued to investigate the activities of Lollards and rebels, um, covering London, Bristol and some 20 counties in the Midlands and the south of England. Indictments for 10 of these counties and, um, and the city of Bristol survive in the National Archives under the reference KB9-204-1. These returns and lists of jurors who served on them total nearly 200 documents. These indictments, or um, accusations if you like, saw 115 men indicted for rebellion, 47 for both rebellion and heresy, and 52 for heresy alone. The Crown Courts could, of course, not try heresy. That lay within the jurisdiction of the Church Courts. It's clear that Henry V took this uprising very seriously, however ineffective it actually had been on the day. It's also clear that the significance the King placed upon the revolt was passed on to those commissioners who had been appointed to investigate. And this is evident in the high turnout at these hearings. Those appointed to Orient Terminate Commissions um, not infrequently viewed them as a chore to be avoided. They were time-consuming and took you away from whatever else you wanted to be doing. Turnout from commissioners in other, in other commissions was often under 50%. In contrast, in the inquest after Oldcastle's revolt, the turnout was much higher. In Worcestershire, seven of nine commissioners appointed were present. In Derbyshire, eight of 11. Hertfordshire, five of seven. And this is true even of the, the nobility, who were not normally present at such commissions. Take one example. Richard de Vere, the Earl of Oxford, attended all four sittings of the Essex Commission. Given that this was the only government-sponsored activity the Earl ever participated in that did not involve hitting somebody, preferably a Frenchman, over the head with a sharp instrument, um, such attendance and such turnout is striking. The documents also show or shed light on, on Lollard beliefs, or at least what they were perceived um, to be. And I'll pick a few examples of some of the more interesting ones here. One John Belgrave of Leicester, who was indicted for being a Lollard and an excellent speaker against the Pope and his power and that of the bishops, was reported to have said that there has been no Pope from the time of St Clement the Pope until this day. And if nothing else, he showed pretty good historical knowledge since St. Clement was the second or third bishop of Rome after St. Peter and died in 99 AD. So he'd certainly done some research at some point. One Ralph Friday was reported as saying, rather pithily, I think, that Thomas Arundel, Archbishop of Canterbury, is a disciple of the Antichrist and a murderer of men. And in Northamptonshire, one William Teband um, was said to hold many heretical opinions including that the Pope had no power over him, and this little extract here, which, in which he is said to believe that holy water had no more efficacy than a boy's urine, <laughs> which is slightly crude, but, but it gets his point across, I suppose. John Oldcastle himself um, escaped the debacle outside London in 1414 and remained on the run for three years. The authorities were keen to catch him, and so keen, in fact, that they offered um, the huge sum of a 1,000 marks and a pension of £20 a year for information leading to his capture. This, was, um, issue, uh, th this information was, was proclaimed in this, in this um, proclamation 
Um, now under the document reference E175-3-15. Interestingly, it's in English, so everybody can understand it. And the promotion of English as a language for government records and actually, in fact, for the court was something that was quite typical of Henry's reign, though usually a little bit later than, than this. But he is um, someone who did promote the English language. The proclamation describes Old Castle, and I quote, as continuing in his evil and cursed purpose to destroy this noble church of England and the king and his true liege people. The proclamation um, seems to have worked. Old Castle was finally captured at Welshpool in Powys, and he was taken to London and hanged while a fire was lit underneath him. The linking of heretical beliefs with treason and sedition united the church and the crown in opposition to Lollards, and it brought the power of the the royal administration to bear on the Lollards. But by acting against this sect, Henry was also able to demonstrate his own piety as well as his power. It gives him the opportunity to come across as orthodox and to support um, the Holy Church. The Lollards, in fact, nicknamed Henry the Priest's King, a nickname he would actually have been quite proud to have had. It suits his purposes nicely. Nonetheless, a revolt against his rule is not something that Henry would have wanted. It's not something that's good. And Henry needs to find a solution if he can. A foreign war could provide a distraction and a diversion to domestic troubles by focusing the the nobility and the gentry on their traditional military role. It could also provide legitimacy for Henry and his dynasty. A victory in battle would be seen as God's judgment that Henry was the rightful king. But to invade another country was a huge gamble. Um, Defeat or stalemate would have provoked huge resentment of wasted taxes and would redouble criticism at home. So Henry tries to exploit France's internal divisions um, to achieve what he wanted by diplomacy, um, at least initially. Henry demanded the overlordship or control of Normandy, Touraine, Maine, Anjou and the old borders of Aquitaine. That's not terribly far off half of France. He also asked for the payment um, of the remainder of the ransom of King John of France, who had been captured at the Battle of Poitiers in 1356, but the ransom had never been paid in full. And he asked for a marriage to a daughter of the King of France. The French are keen for Henry not to invade, and they are prepared to give him some of these things, but they do not and cannot agree to all of them. Henry holds a hard line and um, decides in the end that he is not getting enough from the French and that he should go to war. The campaign of 1415 was a tight-run thing. The Successful, uh, long but successful siege at Harfleur seriously weakened Henry's army through an outbreak of dysentery and during the march back to Calais, which was a risk in itself, the English army stopped by the little French village of Agincourt where they faced a much larger French army. This, I think, is a talk for another day, perhaps um, in about two years' time when the 600th anniversary of that battle... But suffice to say that the English victory there against substantial odds removed almost all questioning of Henry's authority or his legitimacy. And it enabled him to build a reputation as one of the great English kings that has endured to this day. Uh, And as I mentioned at the beginning, rather helped by one of Shakespeare's best history plays, stuffed with stirring speeches and, and great phrases. Once more into the breach, dear friends, once more. But 
I do think it's worth emphasising, I hope I've shown a little today, um, that to achieve this, this glory, Henry had had to endure a great deal. He'd had a decade of war in Wales um, before he became king. He'd run into, into disputes with his family, with his father and his brother, and he'd seen political and religious revolt against his rule within his first two years. It's a long way from both from the Playboy Prince and this, the later glorious image of the king. Thank you very much. This talk was recorded on the 7th of March 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.